My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Hello, Sunrise Church family. This is Pastor James, and I'm coming to you live via video, but I can't wait to be back with you in person this next Sunday. Right now, uh, my family and I are finishing up our sabbatical, and yet I wanted to share with you a very special message today. Now, during our sabbatical time, the time that we had off this summer, my family and I had the opportunity to tour the Holy Land, uh, the land of Israel. And we were honored to see most of the biblical towns and the locations. We traveled uh, from the far north to the far south. In fact, in the Bible time, it was said uh, Dan to Beersheba. Dan in the north, the northernmost places to Beersheba in the south, the southernmost wilderness. And most of the Bible story occurs in those places where our family was able to drive and to walk and to traipse around and to hike. Now, toward the end of our trip, we were up in the Old Testament city of Dan in the north, and many of the biblical events happened up in that region, but one story in, in, just in particular was impacting to our family. It was pretty impressive. We had hiked up to the high place that Jeroboam had built. Now, you see that phrase, high place, a lot in the Bible. It just means the highest place where you build a temple to worship or an altar. And Jeroboam built that for the northern kingdom. Now, okay, let me stop here. What does that mean? Uh, let me go back in history. You remember that David was the great king of Israel who had a heart for God. In fact, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. God himself says that. that's pretty cool. If you ask me, pretty amazing, pretty awesome, that David and God had such a great relationship that God said that David's heart was like his own. I love that. David was a great king. But then David died, and the kingdom was passed on to his son, Solomon. And we know a lot about Solomon. We know he was the wisest man to ever live. In fact, God actually granted him that request for wisdom by visiting, visiting him. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? That God showed up and said, just ask whatever you want. And he wanted wisdom, and so God gave it to him. We also know he wrote much of the wisdom literature, the Bible, uh, Book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, which we recently studied. But we know this, even though he possessed all that wisdom, he didn't live it out. We see it in the way he pursued pleasure. He married 700 wives and had 300 concubines. Uh, in the way he pursued power with the horses from the chariots from Egypt he got. And all his possessions, all the gold and silver that anyone could ever want. And because of those things, his heart drifted away from God. Yeah, sure, he built the temple of God. It was an amazing temple to Yahweh God. But, of course, he also bought and built the supplies for other temples, the pagan gods all around. And when Solomon died, the country split in two to the north and the south. Ten tribes went to the north and followed a rebel named Jeroboam. And two tribes remained faithful to David's dynasty in the south and followed Solomon's son, Rehoboam. 
And when the rebel Jeroboam took most of the people away from Jerusalem and the temple, he knew that they would want to return and worship God. And so he had a dilemma on his hand. What was he going to do? If they go back to Jerusalem to worship at the temple of Yahweh, they might be inclined to stay. And so he built up two different places for his people to worship. One was in the south in Bethel, and the other was in the north, and the north was in Dan. That was the city that my family and I had an opportunity to visit. Up in the, the area of Dan there in that little town, he built an altar for worship. And he built an elevated platform where he placed a golden calf for the people to bow down and worship as their god. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, this all sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Because over 500 years prior, the people of God were at the base of a different mountain, Mount Sinai. And Moses was up on that mountain receiving the very teachings of God. Now, the people grew impatient, though, waiting for Moses to come down. And so Aaron took all of the gold that they gave him and they fashioned for them a golden calf to worship. This, of course, was a cheap substitute for the real God, and both God and Moses were furious at this. You see, all these years later, now another golden calf shows up into Israel's story, and once again, the people bow down and worship it as their God. This time, it represented a local God, uh, a God called Baal, one of the Canaanite gods, a fertility god. The Bible tells us that Even Rehoboam, Solomon's son in the south, ended up worshiping this false pagan gods. The whole nation was falling apart. I mean, how could it fall apart so quickly, right? How do you go from David, a man after God's very own heart, to Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, yet he fell from faith, to Rehoboam, who was totally corrupted in his faith? How do you get there? Well, my friends, uh, this is what my wife and I talk to our sons about up there at Dan. You get there, you get there one chair at a time. While our family set up at this high place and told stories about the Old Testament right there in Dan, Mary Beth and I talked about how people far from God come to know God and then their descendants fall away. And how quickly, in just a few short generations, it can fall apart. I mean, think about it. Uh, Father David had a heart after God. Son Solomon compromised his faith. And grandson Rehoboam had a corrupt faith. That's not an unusual story. David loved God and made a commitment to follow God. He wasn't a perfect man. He wasn't a perfect husband. Certainly not a perfect father. There's many stories that we would say don't emulate him in that. But he did make a strong commitment to follow God with his whole heart. His Solomon... He had a great heritage, and he grew up in a really strong family of faith. But we you know, we know he didn't make the same commitment that David had made. And even though Solomon knew you know, of his own father's commitment to God, David's commitment, Solomon's own life wasn't marked by commitment. It was marked by compromise. You see, he turned his heart from the true God to worship the gods of pleasure, the gods of power, the gods of the possessions of this world. And it's no wonder that when it was time to turn the kingdom over to his own son, Rehoboam, that's David's grandson, uh, the nation split in two. And Rehoboam ultimately led the people of God into sin. Rehoboam lived his life not committed to God, not even compromised, but in direct conflict to the true God. So, That day, up at the high place of Dan, my wife and I sat there and we talked to our sons about this story 
about how this happened. And we asked our sons in your life, which chair will you sit in? Not. I want to ask you that same question today, and I want to use it with these chairs. Up there, I used three different stones that marked part of the altar, but each of these chairs represents a different type of person and a different type of faith, three different levels of commitment toward God. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you probably have sat in at least one of these, right, at one time in your life or another, you're going to know that. And during my message, I'm pretty sure it won't take long for you to discover which of the chairs you sit in right now, which one you occupy or have occupied. And you're going to discover how this chair relates to nearly everything in your life. Now, as you reflect on the chair that you sit in, you might be shocked to discover how dramatically your chair does influence the choices you make. The spiritual life, not just of yourself, the spiritual life of those around you. And if you're married, you have children, the spiritual life of your children. If you have grandchildren, the spiritual life of your grandchildren. You see, each of these three chairs represents a person's spiritual status before God. So uh, let's sit in the first chair and let's talk about this person. So the person who sits in this chair, a first chair person is someone who is definitely a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, the truth of this matter is that this person has gone beyond simply praying a prayer uh, or receiving a gift of salvation to willfully actually submitting themselves to the Lordship of Jesus, that God's authority is over their lives and they're following God in every direction. This person knows Jesus as a personal friend and savior, is developing a meaningful and growing relationship with him. Uh, really, you could say it this way. You could hang the word commitment onto this first chair. And, and I know many of you sit in this chair. That's my story. When I came to faith in Jesus Christ when I was 15 years old, man, I bought the message of Jesus hook, line, and sinker. When I read the Bible and discovered this, and I made this commitment almost 40 years ago, there was no compromise in my belief or my behavior. I made the choice to sit in this chair, to follow Jesus Christ, to have a first person encounter with God through Christ. Now, I hadn't known a life of faith, and so it was a complete and total life change when I began to follow Jesus Christ. Now, the second chair here, the second chair represents someone who has received new life in Christ, most likely, but hasn't really decided how little or how much they will follow him. On the outside, they look just like a person in the first chair. They believe all the same truths as the person in the first chair. They follow the Christian lifestyle in many outward ways, just like the person in the first chair. And usually they have the best of intentions. But instability and inconsistency often mark this person's course of life. And now unless, hear me, unless there is a spiritual wave rolling through his or her life, a second chair person quickly runs short on spiritual strength and often lives a life short of the desired commitments of God. You could hang a different word, not the word commitment, but the word compromise onto this chair. The difference between a first and a second chair person can be summed up in Jesus' pretty frightening words, the church in Laodicea. You read this in Revelation chapter 2, and then this one is in chapter 3. You could liken it to the first chair person as a white hot faith. The second chair person has a lukewarm faith, like hot water or lukewarm water. Jesus says this kind of faith is upsetting to his stomach. It actually makes him sick. Jesus also mentioned there is a dead faith, a cold faith. 
and it's represented by this final chair, the third chair. This uh, third chair stands for someone who has not responded personally to God. Again, they are not a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, now, of course, a third chair person uh, may not have always known they weren't a Christian. They may have consciously or even unconsciously rejected God. They may be confused about their spiritual state, uh, but they go to church. I mean, they attend everything like normal. Now, here's how this works, especially if this person has grown up in a Christian family surrounded by, you know, just the God talk, the churchianity, they may look, they may act, they may feel, they may even think they're a Christian, but they're not really a follower of Jesus Christ. And even though others may not know it, at least for a while, they begin to know it over time. And you could hang the word conflict onto this chair. Commitment, compromise, and conflict. There you have it, my friends. Three chairs, three spiritual conditions. And I believe that every one of us fits in one of these spiritual conditions. Maybe one of these descriptions. Maybe perhaps even now you know which chair you sit in. For me, I sit in this first chair. But I could have easily grown up in a home where I sat in this chair. It's important to view these chairs and understand how they relate to God because you are in one of these chairs. The first chair person sees God through the heart of a relationship with God. After all, they have forged ahead and sat in a new course, set a new course for their lives. They are followers of Jesus Christ and they have a relationship with him. When they think of God, it's about delight and the joy of knowing him. A second chair person sees God through the head, not the heart, but through the head of the responsibility that they have towards God. There's a lot riding on the sons and the daughters of first chair people, and so they have a lot of responsibility. A lot of pastors' kids grow up this way. They have grown up in a Christian home and know what it means to look and act like a Christian. And, uh, you know, they may have incredible pressures to think and act like a Christian, whether it's overtly or not. Uh, so they begin to think like that. They begin to think of God, but they don't think of God as delight, like a first-chair person. They think of their relationship with God as a duty. It's a responsibility. And I have no doubt that they love and serve God, but it's not, it's not a delight. It's a duty. Well, the third-chair person. My friends, the third-chair person sees through the eyes of religion, the eyes of religion. They've seen the good of Christianity, but more often than not, They've seen the hypocrisy of their parents as well. They don't think of God as a delight. They don't think of God as duty. They don't want to even follow the duty of their parents' faith. They think of God as a drudgery, a chore, something they have to do while they wait to grow up and leave their parents' house. So how does all this fit together? Let me, let me just share that. All this comes together simply this. Let me take you back to the book of Joshua, chapter 23. Let's go way back in the history of Israel. Moses has brought the people to the land of Israel. Joshua, the general, has brought them in and conquered the land. Joshua himself had risen up as a slave in Egypt, a servant of Moses. He was a desert spy. He was the great general and leader after Moses' death. And in Joshua 23 and 24, Joshua knew that his time was coming to a close. And as he approached the end of his life, he wanted to challenge his people one more time to make a commitment to move up to the first chair, to live life for God. And we read this in Joshua 23, verses 1 to 11. 
The years passed, and the Lord had given the people of Israel rest from all their enemies. Joshua, who was now very old, called together all the elders, leaders, judges, and officers of Israel. He said to them, I'm now a very old man. You have seen everything the Lord your God has done for you during my lifetime. The Lord your God has fought for you against your enemies. I have allotted to you as your homeland all of the land of the nations, yet unconquered, as well as the land of those we have already conquered, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. This land will be yours, for the Lord your God will himself drive out all the people living there now. You will take possession of their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. So be very careful to follow everything Moses wrote in the book of instruction. That's the book of Deuteronomy. Do not deviate from it, turning either to the right or to the left. Make sure you do not associate with the other people still remaining in the land. In fact, it says, do not even mention the names of their gods, much less swear by them or serve them, or worship them. Rather, cling tightly to the Lord your God, as you have done until now. For the Lord has driven out great and powerful nations for you, and no one has yet been able to defeat you. Each one of you will put to flight a thousand of the enemy. For the Lord your God fights for you, just as he has promised so be very careful to love the Lord your God. That's Joshua 23, verses 1 to 11. Now, friends, I can just imagine this scene. It's pretty amazing when I think about it. This old man of faith calls the people of God together, and he says it this way. Friends, you've seen it yourself. Don't forget. Don't forget what God has done. Don't grow cold in your love for God. You're now living in the promised land and you are enjoying all the fruits of your labor. Your parents dreamed of this day, but there's a danger. Don't forget what God has done. Now, after Joshua reviewed the entire story of God's goodness to Israel, he threw down the gauntlet. He threw down the challenge of a lifetime in Joshua 23, verses 14, 15, and 16, when he said these words. He said, soon, I will die, going the way of everything on earth. Deep in your hearts, you know that every promise of the Lord your God has come true. Not a single one has failed, but as surely as the Lord your God has given you the good things he promised, he will also bring disaster on you if you disobey him. He will completely destroy you from this good land he has given you. If you break the covenant of the Lord your God by worshiping and serving other gods, his anger will burn against you and you will quickly vanish from the good land he has given you. Now, that's a warning that Joshua gives in Joshua 23, 14 and 15, 16. I mean, it couldn't be any clearer, right? I mean, this is the warning. You've seen the goodness of God. You're witnesses, eyewitnesses of it. But there's an amazing warning here. And then some amazing words. He says, so fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshiped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. And if you refuse to serve the Lord, 
then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. I love that. In fact, I love that so much, those last few words are on the wall of my house. Well, what was the response to this challenge? This is what happened. The people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God. We will obey him alone. Joshua 24, 24. Joshua's entire life led up to this one powerful moment. Without a doubt, it was the most important question God's people of that day would ever hear. Choose today. Make a decision today whom you will serve. I'm going to stretch it out. Make a decision today which chair you will sit in. I actually think it's the most important question God's people of any day could hear. Their response, my friends, was amazing. You you heard it. We will serve the Lord our God. We will serve him alone. Now that sounds amazing. But come on, as you trace the story of the children of Israel all through the Old Testament, they failed, right? You can even trace the record of these elders, and you'll find plenty of evidence that these elders served the Lord only when it was convenient, only partially. There was a compromised faith. Now, here's just a snapshot found in the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges. It's just a page over, and it's easy to read. It's really depressing, though. Judges 1, 27 to 30. It says, The tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people living in Bethshan, Ta'anak, Dor, Eblium, Megiddo, and all their surrounding settlements, because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. When the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, but they never did drive them completely out of the land. The tribe of Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, so the Canaanites continued to live there among them. The tribe of Zebulun failed to drive out the residents of Kitron and Naholal, so the Canaanites continued to live among them. But the Canaanites were forced to work as slaves for the people of Zebulun. That's the beginning of Judges, Judges 1, 27 to 30. Now, what God told them to never, ever, ever do, they did immediately. Because it was convenient. God said never, ever, ever mix with the pagan people. Drive the pagan people completely out of your midst. But they didn't. They didn't have enough faith in God, and so those pagan people lived all around them. See, this generation lived a compromised life. They never completely loved God the way Joshua's generation did. But they tried to make God fit into the culture where they were living uh, versus shaping their culture to worship God, to honor God with a commitment to God. And so they were compromised. Now, you read this, when Joshua had been fully committed to obeying the Lord, the elders, though, they were compromised. When he was committed, they were compromised. When the enemy tribes proved too difficult to remove because they didn't trust in God, the elders decided to call off the battle and put the Canaanites under tribute. Now, I'm sure it sounded like an amazing, wonderful plan, right? Think about this. Uh, The fight's too much for us. This faith is too hard to live out. I'm just going to settle back a little bit, and I'll make a decision. I'll make an agreement. There'll be no more fighting, no more death. That's always good, right? And we're going to charge them. There's going to be plenty of money coming our way, right? They'll be our servants. Everybody wins, right? But soon the Israelites and their pagan neighbors were not just on good terms. 
they began to give their sons and daughters to each other in marriage agreements. And God had said, never, ever, ever do that, that you are not to mix with the people of the land. You are to drive them out. Now, the disappointment of God was obvious to these compromised people. And we see it in Judges chapter 2, 1 to 3. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, but you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your side and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. Judges 2, 1 to 3. You see, friends, they made their choices and then their choices made them. But it also made the choices of their children very, very difficult. And so what happened next was expected, right? How could it happen any other way? their children turned away from God. The next group of Israelites, known as the children of the elders, were neither committed like Joshua in his generation. They were not compromised like the elders in that generation. They were completely corrupt. This is what the Bible says about them in Judges 2, 10 to 13. After that generation died, that's the elders, Another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, not their God, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. Judges 2, 10 to 13. So here we see a people who lived in conflict with God. They only knew God as a religion. They may have tolerated their grandparents when they spoke about the plagues of Egypt and the miracle, the parting of the Red Sea. But what they had grown up with were parents who lived in peace and prosperity, parents who lived a compromised life. And what had shaped their understanding of God was just that reality of a compromised life. Now, friends, I, I want to I go back and ask you the question that my wife and I asked our sons. And, and I want to phrase it by just saying I have a lot of experience this with, with this because I was a youth pastor and I've been a senior pastor. I've been in ministry 30 years and I've seen it over and over again. And I know why so many young people stop coming to church when they turn 18. I know why so many young people, when they leave their parents' house, they no longer go to church. You know why they do that? Because they can. <laughs> they, they, they have the keys to their own car. If they do not move up to the first chair... They don't want to waste time with something that is not truly important to them. Uh, and, and if they do decide to stay in church so as not to upset their parents or grandparents, the children of those people will ultimately reject God altogether. Why? Well, I've seen it, my friends. It comes back to the three chairs. And this is what we shared with our sons, that every one of us lives in a chair. We sit in a chair of commitment or compromise or conflict. 
It's, it's natural. It's a generational slide. We know what happened to Joshua, who was committed, but the next generation, the elders, were compromised. And then the elders' children, they were in conflict. It happened to David. David was committed to God. Solomon was compromised. Rehoboam was in conflict. Every person has to move up to the first chair of faith and own their own faith. It is not enough to grow up in a quote-unquote Christian household. Your faith must be first-person faith. You cannot live off the coattails of another believer. After all, what parents do in moderation, children do in excess. And if you look closely, you might even see this in your own life. And so let me ask you the question again. Which chair do you sit in? And how do you feel about the chair that you're sitting in right now? Do you have a committed faith, first-person faith? Do you have a compromised faith? Do you have a conflict faith? My dear friends, each generation must make the move up to the first chair, or the tragic result will be compromise and eventually conflict. Are you satisfied with your choice of chairs? Are you confident that spending the rest of your life in the chair that you now sit in is the right choice? Because... The choice is up to you. You can't live off your parents' faith. If you have children, do you know which chair they sit in today? Now, perhaps you have grandchildren. If you have grandchildren, do you know which chair they sit in right now? Has any generational slide occurred in your family? Or has each generation made the move up to the first chair? Years ago, when I was a youth pastor, I used to challenge my young people with this simple understanding. Do you own your own faith? Own your own faith. Don't, don't live off the faith of your parents. I mean, I understand that. It's natural to grow up and live off the faith of your parents. That's great. I understand that's how it works, right? Some of you, though, might be in that situation right now. You're in this chair and you're living off the faith of your parents. Or maybe you're in this chair because you're living off the faith of your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Or you're living off the faith of your husband or wife. But my question is, have you owned your own faith? Or are you living off someone else's faith? In other words, have you made the move up to the first chair or are you in the second chair? A friend of mine said this to me a few years ago and uh, it's just stuck with me. It'll stick with me the rest of my life. She said this, James, she said, I've come to understand that the true test of your parenting is not how your children turn out. It's how your grandchildren turn out. Man, wiser words have never been spoken when it comes to the three chairs. So the question is, one more time, which chair do you sit in? I mean, my wife and I asked this of our sons. We talked about this. We talked about the three chairs, the chair of David or Solomon or Rehoboam and Jeroboam. We talked about the, the Joshua and Moses, and we talked about the elders, and we talked about the children of the elders. Which chair do you sit in? Is, is it a commitment? Is it a compromise? Is it a conflict? I mean, will you make the choice to move up to the first chair? If your life is filled with compromise to the path of God, would you make the choice today to not live off of someone else's faith or not have a compromised faith or a lukewarm faith, but have first chair faith today, a commitment, a personal relationship? How do you do it? How do you sit in this chair? Well, you decide to have a first person encounter with God. You can't live off of someone else's faith the rest of your life. It might jumpstart your faith and that's great. But today, you need to make your own decision, your own faith commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. My friends, we are told in Romans chapter 10, verses 9, 10, and 11, 
that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Romans 10, 9 to 11. Now, friends, that is really simple. It truly is simple. This is absolutely what you have to do. You confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart. Confess, you say the words and you believe, you trust those words. There's nothing about being a good boy or girl. There's nothing in there about going to church. There's nothing about reading the Bible. There's nothing about giving in the offering. Those aren't bad things, but those will not make you right with God. Only by confessing with your own mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means he's your boss. You've moved up to the first chair. And believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he died for you. He's your savior. Only those things, confessing and believing, will make you a believer in God. Would you do that with me right now? In fact, I want everybody here to close their eyes. And if you've never made this decision to make a commitment to God and move up to the first chair, then you should do it right now, my friends. If you find yourself in the chair of compromise or in the chair of conflict, move up to the chair of commitment today. Some of you I know, many of you have already done that. And this is just a reminder message for you, but it's also a message where I ask you to please pray for those around you because they might be making that decision that you made years ago, that I made nearly 40 years ago. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the things that I've done in my life and those things that break your heart. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything I know that is against your plan for me and believe that you came to die for me. On the cross, you died to set me free. On the cross, your death paid for my sins. So now I confess with my own mouth that you're Lord. And I believe in my own heart that you rose again from the grave. Right now, you are inviting me to follow you, and I say yes to your offer of eternal spiritual life. Right now, I choose to move up to the first chair of commitment and have a personal relationship with you. Thank you for all you've done to make this possible. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. Friends, this is exciting. If you've done that, then you are a child of God. And our church, Sunrise Church, exists to lead you in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to come alongside you today and do just that to encourage you and lead you toward Jesus. Please let us know about your decision by indicating it uh, on one of the Connect cards. It's in the back of the chair in front of you. And you can either uh, give it to one of the ushers today. You could drop it in the offering bucket as it comes around in the next few moments. Or you could even, and this would be the biggest ask, you could come up afterwards and talk to one of our prayer team about the decision you've made right after the service. As your pastor, I'm proud of you. And I'm proud not just to be called your pastor. I'm proud that you're a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here today and you couldn't make that commitment yet. 
let me know about it, and I'd love to connect you with someone who can answer your questions and help you know more about God's love. So let's stand and welcome up our worship team as they lead us in worship, the worship of our great and loving God who invites all of us to move up to the first chair of a relationship with him.